Hey everybody, it's Associate Pastor Jeff Boyette here at Grace Chapel Fairview, and welcome to our podcast. Our prayer for you today is that you will lean into the message and that you'll walk away feeling inspired and changed, bringing you a new perspective on how Jesus is moving in your life. Let's join Pastor Ian. I don't know about you guys, but we all need, I feel like I need people in my life that, that will be honest with me and tell me that I'm just not that big of a deal every now and then, right? And I was thinking about that. I don't know why you're clapping. <laughs> but I was thinking about that uh, as we were sitting down here, and I'm, I'm, uh, like, I have this story to share, and, and I realized like, I actually have a lot of people in my life that will tell me I'm not that big a deal. I don't know what that means. But, but one of the people who will tell me uh, what's true all the time, they're not caught up in my role or my position or my influence or what I do, is, is my spiritual advisor. It's a, it's a lady that lives out in some cabin in Colorado. We've never actually met face to face, but she was one of my teachers in college and Bible school. And she, she does that for a living. She kind of works with pastors to just kind of go, hey, I don't care about what you do. I don't care about, you know, it's not that she doesn't care about you guys. She just, her, her point is to never be a part of our church. It's just to help me see what God's doing and help me process what God's doing in my life. And so it's a really unique relationship because she just doesn't care. Like I can't go, man, we had a ton of people at church this morning. She's like, so? <laughs> she, she's not influenced by, by what I do. And she only wants to, to look at my life and help me see what's true. And, and there's this funny thing that she started talking to me about a couple years ago when I would bring her kind of issues. Hey, you know, we talk maybe once a month and and hey, this is going on, and I'm trying to figure out how to process this, and what's this, and I'm not sure how to do here, and how I should I respond to this. And, and, and she used this phrase, and, and it's something we've talked about a lot, but she said, Ian, what is your faithfulness? And that's a, that's a phrase that she continued to grab a hold of, and she continued to push back on me. Because what would oftentimes happen is, is I found myself in the process of, of, of trying to understand how to fix everyone else's issues and do everybody else's job and, and how to do all the other people's stuff. And she would always bring it back to this one question, Ian, what is your faithfulness? You see, in this moment, in this situation, in this instance, what is it that God's saying you need to do? Because there's one thing you need to do and then there's stuff that everyone else needs to do. You can't worry about them, but what is your faithfulness? And I thought about that as we started to, to, to get into this series and we started to look at the book of Nehemiah. I love that Nehemiah understood what his faithfulness was. And as we continue to unpack and we continue to, to look into this incredible story of Nehemiah, we're going to start to see how, how when we get a hold of our faithfulness, anything becomes possible. When we start to not focus on how to fix everyone else, when we focus on, 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 on when we stop focusing on how to, how to make sense of this crazy world, how to make sense of, of what all is going on, and we start to say, God, in this moment, in this instance, on this day, what is my faithfulness? We will unlock and start to experience something called freedom. We'll, we'll start to, to walk in something called grace where he empowers us uniquely to do something we've been called to do and be the person he's called us to be. 
You see, I believe no matter where we are, no matter where this week has brought you, that you have a unique faithfulness, that whenever you start to get a hold of it, you'll start to experience freedom, hope, and, and, and life to the fullest. And Nehemiah got a hold of that. He, he understood it. And last week, can we give it up for Pastor Jeff preaching the word last week? You know, there's something about like, like when you're away and knowing, like being somebody's preaching the word and they're faithful and they're going to be awesome. There's another thing when 13 people say yes to Jesus when you're gone. I'm like, hallelujah. Yeah. I'm happy. I really am. But, but I'm going, he's going, you know, it was a pretty nice little Sunday. You know, we preached the word. 13 people gave their life to Jesus. I'm like, 13 people gave their life. What? I got to go out of town more often, I guess. So, but there is this, this, this incredible story that he started to unpack for us. And we got to see where Nehemiah starts and, and the beginning of his story and how Nehemiah has this incredible, uh, incredible calling on his life. And, and I think it's important to note right out of the gate, I don't think he, I don't think he knew everything in the very beginning. I think his story unfolded before him, right? He, he took a step of faithfulness, and God shows more. And he took a step of faithfulness. He responded to what God was doing, and, and more came. And, and so I think there is something so interesting about the fact that in, in this season of crisis, in this season of chaos, in this season of, of seemingly just just like being ostracized and, and as believers in the church, it's, it's, it's scary times. We don't know what's coming. Y'all, I wake up almost every day just, I don't want an email from the schools telling me we can't meet. I, I'm afraid, what's COVID going to do? What's happening over here? What's happening over there? What's going on? And, and, and there's so, it's so easy to be distracted and feel this panicky, you know, worry and, and fear. And, and, and I think about this book and I realize that even the name Nehemiah itself means what? The Lord brings comfort. And so when people are in a season, when God's people are in a season of exile, they're in a season of pain, they're in a season of confusion, they're in a season of, oh my God, what's going to happen next? He sends a man that brings God's very comfort and says, watch what I do. We have to remember that the people that Nehemiah is preaching to, that Nehemiah is, is talking about, when we see this book unfold, he's not uh, the guy who's, who's coming to a church that's just, things are going great. He's speaking this, he's responding to a church that's in exile, and he is, 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 is in a foreign land serving a foreign king. And so there is this incredible picture that, that right in the midst of chaos, right in the midst of pain, God sends his man, Nehemiah, which means the Lord brings comfort. And you've got to ask the question, do I need comfort today? Beloved, the exiled people of God are on the outs. The churches are crumbling. The, 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 there is no, you know, you know, it's not a church like this crumbling. But the, but the greater God's people, the lands have been destroyed. The, the city gates are fallen. They're burned and the walls are down. God's people are scattered. Their homes are destroyed. And we see how God brings comfort right in chapter 1. What did he do? He started by observing the state of things. 
He didn't act like things were better than they were. He didn't, he didn't try, to, try to make it look better than it was. He just observed what was going on. The city is burned. The gates are down. The walls have fallen. And he looks right at it. And then he asks hard questions. And then he mourned, number two, the state of things. He let grief do what it does. His heart is broke. He didn't rush through it. He didn't freak out. He just grieved. And then I love this on his last piece, the last part of chapter one. It says, hey, got to have a sweat rag now. He didn't make some strategic plan in the moment of his grief. What did he do? He fasted and prayed before the Lord. And in that prayer, he starts to repent. He starts to call upon God to shape his people. He doesn't just repent for his own sin. He repents for the, for the people who have turned their back on God. He starts making these massive declarations about, about turning to him and trusting in him and believing in him. And the byproduct isn't that he goes, okay, now I have a big strategy in place. I think it just became was the next faithful step. He knew that he had to clear the air, so to speak, to say, hey, if I want to see God move, if I want to see my, my home restored, if I want to see the walls rebuilt, it's going to start by me laying down with my face down, repenting of my sin and the sins of those who have gone before me, and trusting that God is faithful and just, and he's going to answer that prayer. And if we want to see big things changed, if we want to see big walls rebuilt, if we want to see abundant life had and life to the fullest, we've got to get down on our knees and start repenting. We've got to pray to the Lord and say, God, we repent of what we've done. And I can, I mean, how many of us repent for other people? You know, he did that. Go back and read chapter one. He repented for other people. He said, God, I'm, I'm repenting for, for the others. For, pe for my people that have turned away from you. So he starts repenting. And listen, I'm not here to have a theological debate about it. I'm just saying it's in the book. And he's repenting and he's laying down and he's saying, God, move on their life. Change our people. Please, oh God. He, he starts to cry out. And I believe it leads us to this, to this incredible moment where, where we as a people get to say, God, I'm concerned about what things are happening. I, I wake up a little bit nervous every day. That's why I'm so ready to get a building built, because I don't want anybody to email me and say, you can't meet in our building anymore. Nobody laughed. It's just true. It's too soon. I shouldn't have said it. But the truth of the matter is this. I don't want to live afraid, scared, displaced, scattered, living in exile. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne. And if he can't conquer him and he's conquered all, then what do I have to fear? I, I don't understand how it all works. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how to make sense of it all. But I know this, God is not in heaven wringing his hands going, what am I going to do? Why? Because he's the sovereign king of the universe. He, he didn't need me to get things right in order to make things right. He is just good and faithful. And he cares more about what's going on in here than he cares about what's happening out here. And so we need to understand where is my faithfulness. 
And the question that we need to start asking as we journey through the book of Nehemiah is where is your faithfulness? What is it that God is calling you to do in this unique season? What is God birthing in you? What is God changing and shaping and and burdening your heart for in such a way that you're going, hey, I don't know how that's possible. I don't know what that's going to look like. There's no way that I can do it. There's no, there's no, it can't be me. You know, Nehemiah was just Nehemiah before he was in the book. There wasn't something uniquely special about this guy. I mean, his name was cool. Better than Ian. But the truth of the matter is what? It was the way he responded to God, the way he did what he did that that got him a place in an eternal book about God's story to us. And so my question is, is there some of us that are are perhaps going to miss the great calling of our life? Miss the great purpose of our life because instead of looking at at chaos and, 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 and big stuff and craziness and environment stuff happening to us, that we get so caught up looking out there, we stop looking in here and we never respond to him. You see, I think I'm looking at a room full of world changers. But the question is, will you change the world? You see, as we look today, at chapter 2, I was struck because it, it, I believe it's kind of the, it's the predecessor. It's the, it's the steps that he took to fulfill Jesus' words when Jesus said, I've come, you know, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. You see, I don't think anybody ever wakes up and goes, you know what? I think I want my life to be kind of meaningless. I'd like to live a life of no influence. I'd like to live a life of just kind of meh. Nobody thinks that way, right? Have you ever asked your kids? Like I asked my daughter on the way because I was like, I just want to make sure she doesn't say, no, yeah. Then my point would be off here. But I said, hey, what do you want your life to mean? She totally was like, donuts? I don't know. <laughs> she goes, I don't know, Dad. What, what do you mean? I said, do you want your life to matter? And she kind of looked at me like, because I'm always telling her things like, you're like, you're, so, you're, you're going to do great things. And so she kind of looked like stunned, like, what, what do you mean by that? And I went, let me ask it this way. Have you ever thought you wanted your life not to matter? And that question got her. She goes, oh, no, that'd be stupid. Because nobody wakes up as a little kid and goes, I'd like to live an ordinary and mundane life. I wanted to be all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, at one point, I, saw, I pulled something out the other day. I don't know where this came from, but I said, I was six. And I wrote on my thing, I want to be a psychologist. <laughs> I don't even know a psychologist. But I might, I might, I might. But like, I, I, I had no idea why I wrote that. But then underneath... The psychologist thing, my teacher, luckily enough, asked a follow-up because she was probably disturbed with the psychologist's answer. And she said, because he wants to help people. And at the end of the day, we all want to help. We want to make a difference. We want to make an influence. We want to make an impact. I know for certain, my life, I want to go, man, at the end of the time of my time, whether, whenever it is, I want hell to be going, man, I'm glad he's out of there because he made a mess for us. 
I want my life to matter. I, I want my, 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 my whole being, I want, it to, I want it to be for something. And that's why when Jesus says things like, apart from me, you can do nothing, I've always had a really weird interpretation of that. Because I go, man, it doesn't say you can't do anything. It says you can do a whole lot of nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can play church, we can act Christian, we can do all this religious stuff, but if he's not with us, it doesn't matter. It's all just a show, a facade, a, a, a nothing. And so I want to live with him and walk with him and, and, and fear him and worship him and let my life matter. And when I do that, when we do that, we start to live the abundant life God's called us to live. And what I've seen as I look at chapter 2 is I see five observations about how Nehemiah looked at the condition of the reality that was his life. He looked around him. And you got to remember, at the very end of chapter 2, it says at the end of the prayer, for I was a cupbearer to the king. And it kind of has this kind of oddly placed nature to it. You're like, huh. It's just a random way to put it. But if you understand what a cupbearer is, you understand why he put it there. You see, because his life was certainly not a life of sorrow. His life was not a, was not a, a life of suffering. This guy lived in the king's palace. He stood by the king daily. He, he was interacting with the king. The cupbearer of the king was one of the highest levels of influence in all the land. Why? Because the, the king had to trust him because he would take the wine and sip it before the king would because if it was going to kill somebody, it needed to kill the cupbearer. If somebody was going to poison the king, it had to get through the cupbearer first. So that's a massive level of influence. It's a massive level of trust, and it's a massive level of respect that the king would give to the cupbearer. So when he says, I saw all this happening, my homeland, the destruction, the pain, and I repent, God, we turn. He's not saying he's some Joe Schmo who doesn't have any influence. This guy means something in his world. He's got influence. He's got power. He's got respect. He's got comfort. He's got all that stuff. But compared to being faithful to God, it was all a bunch of nothing. The question we have to ask is are we allowing the comfort of our life to keep us from the calling of God on our life? Are we allowing the, the comfort of our situation to keep us from seeing the desperation that is happening in the world around us? Or are we going to turn toward God and say, God, no matter where I am, no matter how comfortable I am, no matter how, how good my current situation is, I'm not going to write it off and assume that's just your blessing. I'm not going to... I'm going to be faithful to do whatever you've called me to do, to lay down whatever you've called me to lay down and trust that your way is better. That was a really long intro. So Nehemiah hears the news of his people, and here's what happens. Chapter 2, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you're not sick, 
This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the places of my father's tombs lie in waste, and its gates are burned with fire? And then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king and, it, and your servants have found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for all the governors of the regions beyond the river, that they must permit me to, to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates." of the citadel which pertains to the temple for the city wall, for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of God upon me. You see, we've already said that everyone wants to live a life that matters. We all have a longing within us to, to live a life of, of, of just, I'm not saying importance, I'm not saying pridefulness, I'm saying we want to have a life that means something, right? We want to have a life that, 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 that is more than just, it doesn't matter where you work or what you do, you can still have a life that matters if you have people around you that you're impacting for the kingdom of God. I'm not saying everybody needs to, to leave their job and run and rebuild a wall. There's only so many walls that can be built. But the reality is, is we all want to have that life of purpose, that, that life to the fullest, life abundantly. And so five quick observations that I make from that text that I'm seeing and I'm going, hey, that is a way that we can step toward an abundant life in our own place, in your own environment, wherever you are, where your influence is. How can we take what, what Nehemiah has shown us and apply it to our life in such a way that we start moving toward a life of uh, matters? Number one, you got to be real. You see, this is an interesting point, but it says that he came in the month of Nisan. He, he, was, he, was, he was real. He, he, he stood before the king. He showed up at his job. He, he stood in front of him, and he did what he was supposed to do, but he didn't fake his face. You see, somewhere along the way, it has become a very normal part of our world to put a happy face on when we are brokenhearted. Somewhere along the way, when we are, are scared, nervous, or afraid, we've learned that I can't trust anybody else because everything about this world says, says get your best, do your best, go to the top, run over everybody. There. And so we got to kind of put our happy face on. I call it our Sunday mask. And we got to act like everything's good when we show up to church. We got to act like everything's good when we show up to our job. And we got to act like things that are, are, are fake are real. We present a version of ourselves online that is nowhere close to reality because we want people to think we're better than we are or we're, we're not as bad as we think we are or whatever it is, and we get so caught up in, in, in keeping up with everybody else and making everybody else think I'm better than I am that we stop being real. And somewhere along the way, church, we've got to go, hey, you want to get to the abundant life? Start getting real with people. 
You can't be in a relationship with somebody that, that, and both of you just kind of, you good? (laughs) Totally, I'm good. You good? (laughs) Even better than you. (laughs) No, man, really, are you good? For sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We're laughing because you know that person. And church, God forbid that make its way in here. Because if people, if God's people can't be real with one another, we can't go into the the court. Like, Like he didn't go into his friend's house. He went into the court of the king and he was completely vulnerable with about how he was doing. And it said he got afraid when the next thing happened. Why? Because when you get real, you're gonna get questions. And so the second observation I make is first, you gotta be real. The second observation is you gotta be honest. You see, when the king asked a, a cupbearer, why are you upset? The reason it says he was dreadfully afraid is because that guy could get killed for bringing bad vibes in the king's room. You see, we don't have relationships to, to kind of create that context. I, I don't have a, a, a way to be like, oh, you know, it's kind of like when this happens. Because like none of us are, you know, we don't live in, a, in, a, in an environment like that. But the reality is it was dangerous. Vulnerability was a dangerous thing for him. And so when he got vulnerable, the easy way out for him right there would have been, King, my apologies. I didn't sleep good last night. I ask you this, would the walls be rebuilt if Nehemiah wasn't honest with the king? So when we start to get real with one another, we start to get authentic, vulnerable with one another, the temptation is going to be that we then need to follow that with, it's not as bad as you think. It's not that big a deal. I'm really okay. I'm not struggling. I'll figure it out. But the truth is, is he's saying, hey, be honest. It, It is my conviction that his honesty his, his realness about being brokenhearted about the people of God and the nature of their home is the very thing that laid the, the pathway and provided the, the opportunity for him to step into the abundant life God had called him to live. And so we want to walk around and think, well, um, I can't act sad. I got to act happy. I got to act glad. I got to act this. I got to act that. The truth is, it is his vulnerability to go, man, my heart is broken that allowed access to the king that created a pathway for abundant living. His destiny is rooted in his ability to be honest in that moment of vulnerability. And so we have to go, man, that's something powerful. I can grab a hold of that. I can can see that. And I love right here, he says, the king asked him, King says, hey, what are you asking? What do you want? (laughs) See, in that moment, when the king of a kingdom is asking you, what do you want? It's easy to let priorities slip. It's easy to go, I mean, if I'm sitting in front of the king and I'm the cupbearer, things are good, I'm brokenhearted over it, and now all of a sudden the king says, Ian, what can I give you? What can I help you with? My fear is that in my immaturity, I'd be like, well, a new house would be great, King. 
He didn't turn toward his desires. He didn't turn toward his carnality. What did he do? He said, I prayed to the Lord of heaven. I, I, I had a moment where anything was available to me. And what did I do? I turned toward Jesus. And so if the first thing is we got to be real, the second thing is we got to be honest. The third thing is you have to abide. You have to, to stay connected in a, in, a, in a world where everything is going to pull you, distract you, make you think that, that this is important or that's more important or focus on this or put your eyes on this, look at this, fear this, be, be scared of this, get worried about this. God is saying, turn your eyes to heaven and pray to the Lord. He's saying, ask him, what do I do now? How do I respond in this moment? How do I, what is my faithfulness right here? You see, I think so often I live my life kind of, God, what is my faithfulness out in all of the land? And the truth is he's going, what is your faithfulness in this next decision? We need to bring God and abide in that very special moment that's right in front of you. I'm not saying don't make plans for your life. I'm saying that that's not as important as abiding right now. Because when I abide right now, it invites God into every decision, every moment, every ounce of, 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 of opportunity, every ounce of, of desperation. It, it invites God to be present in my life. And it starts to, to, to align my life with that which God has called me to do. And it creates in me a heart available to become everything he's made me to become, he abides in Jesus. How do, we, how do we practically do that today? This is one of those, like, the answer is too simple. Everybody's going to go, no, it's got, it's, it can't be that easy. If we want to practice abiding in this crazy world, in this world of confusion, in this world of pain, in this world of chaos... We can read more. We can put this book in front of us. We can, we can put this book before us and we can start to get curious about what it says and, and what it means and, and, and why do I not, I don't understand it. Well, well, why not? Start asking, start reading, start talking to a friend, start calling your pastor going, where do I start? I'm happy to tell you. But if we started reading this book, not out of some misplaced obligation, but recognizing this is a love story written by God to you, and every bit of it is worth your time, and every word in it is filled with hope and life. And the moments that we go, I don't, I don't understand it, it doesn't make sense, he's beckoning you toward his heart. So explore that book. How else do we abide? Well, what did he do? What did Nehemiah do? He prayed. Do you need to have big, bold, crazy prayer language and really spiritual stuff to know how to pray? No. In fact, Jesus says, that's not me. There's a moment where Jesus is, is in the middle and there's two guys praying and, and one guy is kind of like, has this lofty language, and this other guy goes, I'm just, woe is me, I'm a broken sinner. And he goes, that's the guy, that's the prayer I like. 
I don't care about your flowery language or your spirituality. I care about your broken repentance before a king. And so we need to start going, God, I don't know how to pray. And he'll go, keep going. I just want to be with you. Me too. I need you because I don't know how to respond to. I'm there. And we need to start simplifying. We need to start recognizing that, that to read God's word, to pray his prayer. You know, you can just open this book up and pray it. Pray these words. Pray how, how God's leading you to pray, but we got to start by just speaking to him. We read the book so he can speak to us. How else do we do it? We don't forsake the gathering of assembly so we can live in community. We keep living life together, face to face, eye to eye, meal to meal, table to table. That's not something we do just because we, we don't know what else to tell you guys to do. It's something we do because it's, it's how we commune and abide with God himself. Because the spirit of God in you, colliding with the spirit of God in me, creates an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to move, shape, and change us and make us more like him. You were never meant to do it alone. You were never meant to, 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 to try to figure out how to parent or figure out how to, how to be married or figure out how to do. You can't do it on your own, much less navigating the strenuous times at hand. You were meant to be in community with God's people. And so we pray, we read, we get together, and we stay connected and abiding in him. And number four, we've got to be bold. You see, something that fascinates me about this prayer is, is, I mean, let's just try it on. You're going to stand before a king. You're taking a bold risk by being vulnerable. You're taking another bold risk by being honest. So when the king says, why are you sad before me? He doesn't, he doesn't hedge. He doesn't kind of dodge. He just says, God, king, you live forever. But man, why? I, 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 I got to be sad. My, my homeland is destroyed. So he's vulnerable. He's honest. The king says, what do you want? He says, well... God, what do you want? So he abides. At that point, I feel like we've had, uh, like we got enough out of the situation, right? Because the king's going, okay, what do you want? We made it out, like we're alive. What a crazy person would double down and say, also, king, I got another request. Think about that. He already said, okay, all good. How many of us are doubling down in that moment and go, actually, in order for me to do what I'm called to do, you're going to have to write some letters. That is an audacious and bold response. But in the middle of us needing everything that God has called us to do and to be everything God's called us to be, we're going to have to start with realness. We're going to have to follow that with honesty. We're going to have to abide because our own, our, own, our own hearts will turn against us. But then it's time to be bold. Ask for that which you need in order for you to succeed. He said, hey, I'm going to need you to write some letters to this guy, to this guy. I'm going to need you to get me through that place because I know how they are. They're going to try to hurt me. And then I need you to tell the wood guy I need all the wood, even the wood prizes are through the roof. 
But the reality is, is he's not afraid anymore. He's not scared. He's not cowering. He's not let, looking at God like God is a just enough kind of God. You see, we got to get some different lenses about who we're talking about. Our God is not just the God of the world. Our God is the God of the universe who breathes the stars. He spoke and the universe unraveled. He was before and after in the beginning and eternal. God of heaven and, and earth. He is not a just enough God. He's not a just get you by God. He's not a, a God that's going to just go, hey, I'm going to give you just enough to get by. He is everything we need for life and godliness. And so if we want to start to get a vision for the abundant life, we're going to have to get bold about our request. What do you need to be everything God's made you? And start asking the king. Start going before him and saying, God, I need this. If you're telling me that's what I got to do, I need you to make a way where there is no way. I need you to write a letter to the governors. I need you to get me the wood I need to build my house. Because I'm stepping out in boldness to be everything you've called me to be. And by God's grace, I'm going to do it. And number five, you got to believe. You see, the way he closes this portion in this moment, the way he closes this sequence of events says this, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. You see, I don't think we can do any of these things. I don't think we can walk out this kind of life. I don't think we can live this kind of abundance without the hand of God living on every one of us. And you see, he didn't, I don't think, get boldness by just going, you know what, I've had a, lot, I've had a good series of luck here. I've been doing really good. I've been, I've been having some good things happen. He, he only trusted that God was stirring him up to leave a life of comfort, to go to a life of chaos, to fulfill a destiny that would change a people. And he did it knowing that the hand of God was upon him. So my question to you is, do you know that the hand of God is upon you? You see, it is my, my hope and my prayer that, that we would recognize. I'm not saying, you know, like we go... Everything we ask in, 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 in Christ's name, we're going to get. You know, so in Christ's name, I want, you know, a mansion and a Ferrari. You know, it's like, well, that's not what that prayer means. It means in the heart of, in the vein of, in the spirit of. So if, if Jesus would pray it, then we can pray it. And if Jesus would pray it, then it's going to be answered. And so when we pray that prayer, it's going to be answered. It might not look like what, we're, it's gonna, what we think it should. It might not feel like the way we think it should feel. But the bottom line is this. God is faithful to do what he said he would do. And my prayer as your pastor is for you to know that when we do what we've talked about today, when we worship, when we pray, when we repent, when we take communion, when we live sacrificially, when we, when we do these, live this life, there is no question that the hand of God is upon you. 
You don't have to do some special dance or be some super called. You don't have to be some extra spiritual. When you live the, the life God made you to live and you start, start living a life of vulnerability and honesty, abiding in him, living boldly, the hand of God is upon you. And so the question isn't, is God there? The question is, will you go and do? Will you be faithful? Will you be bold? Will you step up and say, here I am, God, send me? Or will we cower back? It's probably for just them. It's just what pastors say. And miss an opportunity to bring the comfort of God to a people that desperately need it, to live a life of abundance that otherwise we might miss. You need to hear me tell you that God's hand is on your life if you're living this way. And if you're not, the path is easy. His burden is light. Anything is possible. And so I exhort us all to step toward this in a, in a moment, in a season of, of chaos and confusion, in a, in a season of, of I don't know, in a season of I'm confused, in a season of I feel, I feel estranged, in a season of isolation. Step toward him. But start by being real, getting honest, abiding in him, letting boldness come forth, and then believing that the hand of God is going to lead you toward your destiny. No matter where you've been, what you've done, or what's happening around you, anything is possible. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, we need you, and we honor you today. We recognize that without you, this is a complete waste of time. But with you, God, we can be a church that rises up. That, that lives bold, that abides richly, that lives honestly. God, that we could be a light in a dark place, a city set on a hill, that we, God, could rebuild, restore, and be a part of your hand changing the very atmosphere and world around us. God, bless and keep my friends and bring us back safe together next week. In Jesus' name, God's people said amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.